The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This afternoon I was reading about the, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda and um, something that he said, I, it might have been in his speech, I think he received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1971 and I think this was in his speech he said that the poets um, what one of the purposes of the poet for a country is to um, offer the opportunity of solidarity and solitude solidarity and solitude and I don't know, I just kind of lingered on those words and I thought that there's a way that um, solidarity and solitude are, are some way apt descriptions for what we are doing here. And um, I feel, uh, you know, in a way I want to acknowledge so this is kind of a mood that I feel or that I'm in or something, a kind of heaviness in my heart. And um, I think it has to do with current events and the kind of the state of things in the world. And maybe it's also winter is coming or something, I don't know. But um, it's very encouraging for me to be with you and to be sitting here, to be together and to be to feel like I'm with kin- kindred spirits, you know, fellow travelers um, on this path. So, so thank you for thank you for being here and coming out. And uh, we often say this that when we sit with others, um, your being here supports everybody else who's here. You know, and um, there's a certain strength in our practice to sit together and create this field. So, um, thank you for being here. And um, what I thought to to just share a few words about this evening, and maybe it's a little bit connected to um, the state of things in the the world, um, is the question or the the topic of um, effort and the kind of effort that we make in Dharma practice. Um, whenever I think of this topic, I think of this wonderful phrase that I learned on my first visit to Japan. Um, this was about, it was almost, I don't know, almost 20 years ago or something. And um, there, there is a, you learn, if, when you go to Japan for the first time, you learn a few phrases like, Arigato, which means thank you. And you learn about 10 ways to apologize because (laughs) there's probably 100 ways to apologize, but there's 10 important ones. And, um, but the phrase that was very moving to me is um, the phrase, Otsukare sama deshita, which means, usually translated as, thank you for your efforts. Thank you for your efforts. And you kind of think, why would that be such an important phrase to know? Um, but it turns out there are many, many occasions in the course of a, 
you know, I was working in a in a in a office in Tokyo, and there are many occasions when um, you're being thanked for your efforts, and at the end of the day, the colleagues kind of go around and bow and say, "Otsukari samadeshita," you know, "Thank you for your efforts today." And this is very beautiful. Um, Rich ritual. But what was especially poignant to me was that it, it, it's not like, thank you for doing a good job. You know, thank you for, thank you for ha- getting great results. You know, thank you for being perfect. Um, it's like, thank you for your efforts. Thank you for um, giving yourself, your, your being, your energy to this task today. And, who, you know, we're not, we don't know how it ter- turned out or we're not sure how it's going to turn out. Uh, but thank you for making this effort. And um, so I always found that moving. And I think there is um, there's some way that this feeling or this movement of um, looking at our effort is is very close to the heart of of meditation practice and dharma practice. Um, I think usual activity, and a lot of the activity that we do, is very oriented around to do something in order for something to happen. We do this in order to get that. We, you know, and it's 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 logical. It's normal. Um, but meditation practice and dharma practice is a little bit of an unusual activity because um, we say that, you know, and this is one, one perspective or one way of thinking about practice, that um, true pra- maybe we could say true practice is not a means to an end. So what does that mean? It's not a means to an end. You know, even though you could think about mindfulness practice, you could think about meditation, and there are many wonderful um, reasons to meditate, and, and many good things may happen if we meditate. But um, if, if our vision of practice and our understanding of practice is I'm doing this in order to, for something to happen, then... Maybe that's narrowing us in some way. Maybe that's cutting off some possibility, or it's like um, I don't know. It's 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 bringing an activity that is so maybe is so vast and so wide, and it's sort of it's squishing it into some small idea, and so. Um, or sometimes I think about it that Dharma practice is no more of a means to an end than our life is a means to an end. You know, um, if we say practice is a means to an end, it's like the, the purpose of this moment is just to get to the next moment. You know, so I'm sort of sacrificing this moment because of some idea of some better moment. So I just get you know these moments are stepping stones. And then I'm going to get to some better moment. And so Dharma practice sort of upsets this idea or challenges this idea or says that our 
our life and our meaning and our purpose and the, the payoff in life is found in each moment. The payoff is in the activity. It's not at the end of the activity. Um, and when I think about it like that, it's like something in me lets go. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. I have my agenda. I have my idea of what I think is supposed to happen you know, in this sitting or um, in this life or something. I have all these ideas. But what is it to let go of those ideas and return again and again to the experience of this moment? What's happening right now? And um, what is it for this to be enough? You know, it may not be perfect. It may not be uh, what I think it should be. But... um, to allow this experience of the moment to be what it is, to be so fully what it is that I, I forget all about my, my, um, my agenda and my goals and this and that. So um, when we think about effort in this way, it's not so much about um, effort to make something in particular happen, but it's the effort to be here and to, and, to, and to wake up and to be alive to what's happening in this body and mind right now. Um, and when we think about goals in practice, um, you know, and they you know, often talk about goals, you know, the goal of being um, peaceful, the goal of being a more insightful and compassionate being, um, that the, uh, the way to the goal and the goal itself start to become very, very close together. You know, it's like, if my goal is to be more peaceful, um, does it make sense to have in, 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 the, in the way to that goal a lot of pushing, a lot of struggle, a lot of striving, a lot of, of well, I'm trying to be peaceful, so I'm going to really <laughs> just wrestle this thing to the ground, whether it's my the breath or, you know, whatever. Or is it, is the way to peace... Um, is, is the way to peace exactly in being peaceful? Is the way to being kind in learning how to be kind to myself and kind to others? And um, so this is, I think, for, for many of us, this takes a lot. We have to learn this le- same lesson about a thousand different ways, <laughs> you know. And... Um, what we often find in meditation practice is trying harder um, ends up not working that well. You know, it's, I, I know for myself that, you know, there's certain kind of conditioning that if I have a goal to just try, try, try hard to get to that goal. And if something's not working, just try harder. And, um, so sometimes in practice, we say, rather than try harder, try softer. You know, what is it to try softer? What is it to soften around, um, 
this whole thing, you know, and bring some, some ease, some softness, some acceptance um, to how things are right now. Um, I, um, there's a, uh, there's a story about effort that I often think of, and it's, it's a story that is an account of someone doing a quite a rigorous kind of meditation retreat in the Zen tradition. And for those of you who are familiar with um, Rinzai Zen, this is a kind of Zen practice that I think comes out of the sort of the samurai lineage in in Japan, or it has that quality of um, an I don't know if it's an exuberant energy, but it's a certain kind of maybe masculine, you know, like when I did uh, some Rinzai retreats, it was when you, when it was time to go see the Roshi to see the master, everyone jumped out of them out of off their meditation cushion and ran as fast as they could. And then the first monk <laughs> who got there got to see the master first, right? And I was kind of you know, sitting there, bewildered. Everyone ran out. And I kind of just <laughs> walked over. And, <coughs> um, and um, so this kind of energy that you put into going to see the teacher. And in this, in this style of practice, you see the teacher about five times a day. But these encounters are very brief. And often the student is working with a koan, which is kind of like a riddle or a question that is not, that is designed to sort of um, frustrate our rational mind. You know, it's like, so I mean, so the classic one that people know or have heard is like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Right? You know, um, and so you go in to, um, so if it's a seven-day retreat, a seven-day meditation retreat, you go in five times a day and you present your answer to the teacher, to the master. And the master has a bell. <laughs> and when he wants you to leave, <laughs> when, it's, when you're done, <laughs> and it's time for the next student, he rings the bell. And, um, and that sort of means no and get out. <laughs> So, um, so the student, you know, had his koan, had his question. And I, I think it might have been the, the question that is often given for um, a first koan is, before your mother and father were born, show me your original face. So before mother and father, show me your original face. Okay. So you get this question and you're meditating with it in a very intense way, and then you go in to see the teacher. And so, the, in this account of, of this retreat, the student goes in for his first encounter with the, with the Roshi, you know, opens the door, takes a few steps in, the master looks at him and ring, 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 
get out. <laughs> okay, you know, <coughs> and so it goes over the course of the of the retreat. Five times a day, going in. Okay, so maybe towards the end of the first day, he gets to finally get to the cushion and sits down. So you sit down in front of the teacher, and starts to give his answer, and. And then the teacher would just look at him with a totally blank, you know, completely no expression and just ring, 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 ring the bell, out. So again and again, he goes in, he gives his answer. And when you give your answer to the teacher, you're not, you know, most, most students sitting in this kind of retreat, they know, okay, it's not, it's not a, it, you're not supposed to give a clever answer, right? You know, it's not... It's not a riddle that you're going to figure out or sort of come up with a with with a with with the correct um, verbal answer. It's like the teacher is somehow. It's not like you crack open the koan. It's like the koan cracks you open, and then you've changed in some way, and you present yourself to the teacher, and they look at you and they say, "Okay." You've understood something. But this is a, you know, how do you do that, right? So you just kind of keep going in and keep offering these more and more sort of desperately <laughs> sincere or desperately something, you know, the emotional, you know, you might cry, you might scream, you might do all these things. And the teacher, you know, totally no expression, just ring, 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 you know, in your face, get out. So this guy, again and again, he goes in. Um, five times a day, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, you know, he's sort of 30 times, right? He's seen the, seen the master. Finally, he goes in and he gives this really heartfelt, like really from the heart, really like not holding anything back. And the teacher just looks at him, stone cold, rings the bell. <laughs> and the student has had it. And he says, you know what? Screw you. This is bullshit. You know. He gets up to leave. And the teacher looks at him and says, getting closer. <laughs> getting closer. And... Yeah. And I often think about that. <laughs> There's something about this effort towards... Um, this is maybe, you could say, this is an example of this extreme effort towards mastery. You know, we're going to try to master something. We're going to try to figure it out. Not only am I going to try to figure it out, but I'm going to get someone's approval, right? You know, and someone's going to acknowledge me and see me. And so there's all this stuff going on. And in this one moment, the guy's like, you know what? You know, he gives up. He lets go. And something that's more real, more authentic, um, more complete is allowed to flow through him. And then finally, the master say, oh, okay, now I see who you are. You know? um, so 
So it's like, are we here to master something? You know, what does it really mean to master something? What's the kind of effort it takes to, to master something? And how do we get to this place of maybe you could say the counterpart to mastery is a kind of surrender? How do we get to this place of surrender where we are um, open to um, the truth of things, surrendering to the Dharma, surrendering to how things are? Um, So I'd like to read this poem, which is maybe could say another flavor of this uh, question of effort and the kind of effort we make. And this is a poem from uh, the Japanese monk Ryokan. Ryokan. Uh, Some of you might have heard of him. He's a beloved figure in Japan. He was a monk about 400 years ago. And he... Um, as as the story of his life goes, he was a very accomplished priest, Zen priest and monk, and had great you know recognition of his um, meditative uh, achievement, and became the abbot of a great temple, but gave it all up, and wanted to be just a wandering itinerant monk with his patchwork robes and just have his bowl and travel around Japan. And he was famous for his sense of fun and his sense of play and playing with children and um, in the villages. And then um, towards the end of his life, when he was quite old, he fell in love with a young nun. And the way we know this is we have their love letters have been preserved. And I don't know if they even ever met really or something, but... Um, so these wonderful letters between them, and he wrote poetry. And often his poems are about his experiences in meditation, his experiences in living this kind of solitary, uh, traveling monk life. So this is untitled, but it's... Where did my life come from? Where will it go? Meditating by the window of my tumble-down hut, I search my heart, absorbed in silence. But I search and search and still don't know where it all began. How will I ever find where it ends? Even the present moment can't be pinned down. Everything changes. Everything is empty. And in this emptiness, in that emptiness, this I exists only for a little while. How can one say anything is or is not? Best just to hold to these little thoughts. Let things simply take their way and so be natural and at your ease. Maybe I'll read one more time. Where did my life come from? Where will it go? Meditating by the window of my tumble-down hut, I search my heart, absorbed in silence. But I search and search and still don't know where it all began. 
how will I ever find where it ends? Even the present moment can't be pinned down. Everything changes. Everything is empty. And in that emptiness, this I exists only for a little while. How can one say anything how can one say anything is or is not? Best just to hold to these little thoughts, let things simply take their way, and so be natural and at your ease. So I feel like here uh, Ryokan is pointing to the possibility of uh, that we don't need to push so hard, you know, and that there's a certain, um, you know, we're, that we're a part of nature. You know, it's like um, how hard do we have to look to see that things are changing? It's like there's nothing but change, you know. It's um, and um, and so, what is it to sort of not be in conflict with the truth of things, of how things are? Um, this kind of naturalness, or this softness. Um, I think um, the other image that came to mind for me in thinking about this this question of effort is the relationship between the effort we make and how we respond to life. And um, rather than having this idea, which may, I don't know if anyone else has this, I I. I had this idea of to to sit and practice for some time and then that will somehow change me into being different and kind of take away my problems. And um, But now I'm much more drawn to this idea of um, something about practice and effort as it's like almost like emptying us out. Um, it's like it's like a bell that if the bell is filled with lots of stuff and lots of junk, you know, it's going to make a kind of a thud, you know, uh, a clunk. But because it's empty, because it's open, because it's um, uh, it has this space. You know, it is able to respond to being, to being, to being struck, to being touched. You know, it can make a beautiful sound. And I think maybe the request of Dharma practice is to make a kind of effort that um, creates more space more more emptiness, more openness within us that we are able to respond to being touched, 
after being um, uh, impacted by what's happening within us, by what's happening relationally, by what's happening in the world, um, then, you know, you know, hopefully, maybe we can make a beautiful sound, you know, in response to, to, to life. Um, and there's this, uh, um, so, so something about this image of practice as, as polishing our effort, you know, again and again, we, we make this effort to be present, to be open, to be available, to be in tune, to be in harmony with the nature of things. Um, and, and there is this, um, maybe this connect, the more we, more we make this effort moment by moment, the more we're able to respond, respond to being touched, to being struck, to being impacted by the world. Um, and um, the the image that comes to mind is the or the um, the ideal that comes to mind is the ideal of the bodhisattva, you know. And the a bodhi, a bodhi means awakening, so bodhisattva literally means an awakening being. And the bodhisattva is said to um, listen to the sounds of the world, to listen to the cries of the world with ease. You know, so what is it to be um, open, empty, present, available, and um, to be able to take in the the great pain, the great suffering that, that is in this world, that will be in this world, but not from a place of fear, not from a place of contraction, not from a place of anger. But it's, it's, it's always amazing to me that the Bodhisattva listens to the cries of the world um, at ease or with ease. And maybe there's something about if our effort, moment by moment, is to cultivate some sense of ease, some sense of well-being, we, we're more able to respond. We're more able to um, be available, to be, resp- to be responsible, or um, capable of being responsible for ourselves and others. Um, and, you know, Bodhisattva ideal is an ideal, so we're not going to always feel that ease. But I think the more we practice in, in this way and return to this way, then when we, when we are called upon, um, that becomes, that is our nature. That becomes our nature. Because we've been practicing this again and again, so we're able to respond. Um, just to maybe end by um, reading something that I came across this morning that I thought was a contemporary you know, 
maybe, maybe a, con- a contemporary manifestation of this bodhisattva energy. Um, you know, in the the tragedy of the um, the of the violence that happened in Pittsburgh. Um, I was reading about uh, a doctor who who was shot, and he um, that he because being a doctor, he ran towards everything that was happening to see if, what was going on, if he could help, and he he ended up getting killed. And um, so this was posted by um, one of his old patients. Said, My doctor, Jerry Rabinowitz, was among those killed in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. He took care of me up until I left Pittsburgh for New York City in 2004. In the old days, for HIV patients in Pittsburgh, he was the one to go to. Basically, before there was effective treatment for fighting HIV itself, he was known in the community for keeping us alive the longest. He often held our hands without rubber gloves and always hugged us as we left his office. We made a deal about my T-cells that I didn't want to know the the numbers visit to visit because I knew I would fret with every little fluctuation. The deal was that he would just let me know at some point when the T-cell numbers meant I needed to start on medications. The numbers were his job, and my job was to finish my master's thesis and get a job with health insurance and try not to go crazy. I got lucky beyond words, because when he gently told me around November 1995 that it was time to begin taking medications, there was a trial for two medications that saved my life. Thank you, Dr. Rabinowitz, for having always been there for me during the most terrifying and frightening time of my life. You will be remembered by me always. You are one of my heroes. Um, I, I, I was moved by that, and I felt that there was something that... Um, reminded me that, um, well, first of all, that life is not a rehearsal for something else, which we know. And even though we call this Dharma practice or meditation practice, um, we are creating who we are and who we want to be in each moment. And when we live our life that way, that's that's what counts, and that's what you know. Um, you know that's that just becomes our nature, and 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 so and then the goodness that we bring into this world um, is something that um, survives us and, and and carries on. So, um, I. I, I wish for for each of us that we can, um, you know, be be like this, um, cultivate ourselves like this empty and peaceful bell, that when we are we are touched, 
we will be able to make a beautiful sound, a beautiful response um, that will help others and inspire others. So, um, so thank you very much. Do you do you do questions or is there? If we have about five minutes. I don't know if anyone has a comment or a question. You're welcome to. Um, May I ask you to uh, repeat the um, the type of Zen meditation that you just mentioned earlier in your uh, speech? The the um, the kind with the 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 koan the yes yeah the rinzai 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 then okay. yeah thank you. Mine is just a comment. Arigato. (laughs) Arigato gozaimasu. Tsukare sama desu. I often forget that The simple things and the simple ways of expressing ideas uh, are the most powerful and give me the most joy. Mm. So I want to thank you for this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. And maybe just to say one more you know, I mentioned this style of, of Japanese Rinzai practice where you have this koan, this question. Um, our practice, we have a koan also. And, but we call it, the, it's like the koan of this moment. What is the request of this moment? What is this moment asking of me? You know, and, um, you know, maybe we could say the koan is what's happening now? What's happening now? And to continually be asking ourselves this question, you know, it wakes us up and it reminds us that in each moment we can see freshly with fresh eyes and respond. And even though we may be weighed down by our problems and our thinking and our, our conditioning, 